Welcome back. This is now episode five. We're just rolling through these. Um, in this episode, we are going to discuss family trauma. Um, I don't think this will be the easiest topic for us to discuss. Nope. But I think it's an important one. Um, one of the questions that Amber asked on our Instagram the other day was, can you break the cycle of family trauma that's being passed down from generation to generation? Yeah. Can family trauma be generational? And can you break the cycle? Yeah. Um, I think this is a, this topic is very different for both of us mm-hmm. because I didn't necessarily deal with family trauma, but I deal a lot with family expectations. That can be dramatic. That has caused trauma, some trauma and some issues. Um, For me, I think the first expectation that I had to deal with that actually probably caused me a lot of issues was the... um, impact my grandfather's views on body and weight ended up going down through generation because he was, you know, my grandfather had an issue with food. Um, He had a scale next to his dining room table. um, And depending on his weight would determine how much he would eat and what he would eat. And uh, he was very judgmental when it came to people's bodies. And I grew up watching that. Um, so he would, you know, tell my mom she needed to lose weight or that she looked heavy. Um, he told my brother once when he came into our house in Baltimore, one of the first things he said to my brother was something about his weight. Um, at my bat mitzvah, when I was already dealing with my eating disorder, he told me that if I didn't lose weight, he wasn't going to buy the outfits for my bat mitzvah. So, but the way that they became kind of generational trauma was on top of growing up with my grandfather making comments about people's weight. I also watched my mom make comments, not about my weight, but about hers. Mm -hmm. So when we would go into dressing rooms when I was younger, it would be a lot of, I hate my body. This looks disgusting. I look fat. And I got into this mindset and this belief the certain body made you beautiful. Yeah. And I think, I don't think that's the reason for my eating disorder, but I do think that played into my eating disorder. Absolutely. Um, and then just the religious expectations of my family, mostly my mother. Um, I, I don't have faith. I don't really believe in anything. I guess. Um, I believe there is a higher power. Mm -hmm. I just don't know what that is. Um, I come from a Jewish family. I went to Jewish day school. I have celebrated every holiday for the majority of my life. I, um, you know, my family in Israel is very, very religious. I've always gone to an Orthodox synagogue, but I do that to make my mom happy. It is not my belief. Um, the other night we were sitting at dinner and we were talking about going to Kansas 
because they have a zoo there where you can swim with penguins. <gasps> yeah. And it's not that expensive. Okay. Um, so we were talking about it and my mom was like, oh, maybe that's like a close drive to go see the remake of Noah's Ark because apparently they made a full size Ark. Yes. I've heard about this. Yes. So I started getting kind of smart assy and said, you know, do they explain how the animals didn't eat each other? And she started giving some reason or whatever, like that there were barricades and blah, 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 and all this shit. And I was like, okay. I was like, and was Noah's family the only family on oh, Noah's God. Ark? Yeah. And she's like, well, yeah. I said, so basically we're all descendants of incest? <laughs> hey, that's a fair question. And I was like, and that's how the Targaryens were born. Um, Game of Thrones reference. Yes. Um, And she made some comment. I was like, or it just didn't happen. And I think that's a very tough issue with my mom and you know my family if they found out um because i don't date jewish men i've tried a few times and they were not nice people yeah um and i think she's still holding out that i'll find my perfect jewish mate um my aunt sent me a book called How to Find Your Perfect Jewish Husband. Okay. I throw it out. That's traumatic within itself. Yeah. Um, I don't <clears throat> think religion should be a reason to marry someone. No. I think love and happiness and dedication and devotion and affection and, you know, all of those values are a lot more important than religion. Absolutely. And it's definitely caused a lot of issues because when I date someone, part of what I have to think about is basically, is this person worth losing my family over? Yeah. Because, you know, my cousins are married to non-Jewish women and my mom did not go to their weddings. She refused to go to their weddings. Um, and I think she was also a little disappointed that my uncle went to one of them. And she actually told one of my cousins that my grandfather would have been disappointed in him. Mm. And I got so mad at that for multiple reasons. One, that's super fucking rude. Yeah. Two, my grandfather's partner for the last, like, decade of his life, probably longer, was with a Scottish Catholic woman. Three, he married a non-Jewish woman at one point. Yeah. And four, I don't think it's anyone's place to judge something like that. No. Like, I just don't get that. And it makes it very difficult because I can't like, some people be like, no, your mom cares about your happiness. And then religion comes and I'm kind of like, no. no, it's religion. And then my happiness, because I have to find someone I'm happy with that happens to be, have the same religion as her. Yeah. And it's not that I have anything against my Jewish background. It's not like I'm anti-Semitic or anything no, like you're that. You're very proud of it. I'm very proud of the culture yes. that I come from and being from a very strong background. 
I just don't believe in any of the, I just don't believe in the Bible. Yeah. I, to me, it's just a bunch of fairy tales and not well-written ones. Um, but it makes it very challenging when it comes to people that I date. Yeah. And now that my most recent relationship is over, my mother has had a few things to say about that relationship. Um, because him and I come from very different backgrounds and we talked about that a little bit in long distance relationships. Um, and my mom really did not like that relationship. Yeah. So it just, it's very hard getting into relationships with people. And when they get serious being like, yeah, we can have a future together, but it won't include my family. Yeah. And when Canada and I were talking about, like, marriage and stuff like that, I had said that, you know, I'm fine with not having a wedding because why am I going to pay a lot of money to have nobody from my family there? Yeah. It's just a big party to remind me that I don't have my family anymore. Yeah. And so we made that decision that if we were to get married, it would just be, like, an elopement, basically. Mm -hmm. Um. But I mean, I, I, as weird as it sounds, I feel like I don't have a lot of family trauma because a lot of my memories growing up, which are very, very few, mm -hmm. I do not have a lot of memories of Baltimore because I chose to block them out because I hated it. Yeah. And because I was being abused there and it was just a shithole. Um, but the memories I do have, the majority of them are with Greg. Yeah. So... As weird as it sounds, I feel like I don't have family trauma because my mom worked a lot. I had no relationship with my dad at the time. And I had Greg. Yeah. And Greg was great. And, you know, I'm forever appreciative for the relationship I have with my brother. Yeah. Yours is more so expectations mm -hmm. and how they molded different things that you went through, like your eating disorder, like mm -hmm. being in a relationship with someone and having to make the decision of do you do what makes you happy or do you do what makes your family happy? Yeah. And I think that will be a episode that we have as family expectations and how do they mold mm -hmm. the life that you create? Um, my experience is very different than Allie's because my background comes from nothing but trauma. Mm -hmm. So even as early as one, yeah, I was taken from my mom. Yeah. I was raised by an aunt who then down the line wind up taking my siblings and growing up, I did not get to have a relationship with my mom. Um, my aunt kind of harbored the control of you're my kid and you will not see this person. And she used my mom as a threat. Like I will drop you off. You will have nothing but the clothes on your back and you'll go live in a shithole. Um, and that was very hard for me growing up because I feel like I grew up, and I grew up in Pembroke Pines, mm -hmm. which was up and coming at the time. And I grew up with, I went to the same elementary school, same middle school, same high school. And I can say this with a disclaimer. I do not discredit the childhood that I have because it could have been very different. Mm -hmm. But I feel like even though it, a lot of my childhood was very great, there was a lot of trauma and it was very traumatic. Mm -hmm. for me to go through yeah. so that kind of molded what I don't want my kids to go through mm 
Um, I remember very early on, um, I mean, my sister at the age of three suffered from stress and, you know, broke out in hives and DCF was always involved because we were, you know, wards of the state. My aunt never legally adopted us because she said in the long run, it was going to make it harder for us to go to college and different things like that. Um, But living where I lived, I went to school with these kids who I watched, you know, they were the quintessential, Pembroke Pines was like the quintessential town at the time, Mm -hmm. or so I thought. Yeah. Where parents had, you know, kids had their mom and their dad. And when I referred to my aunt to my friends, she was mom, but I never called her mom. So I feel like I was a little jaded. Um. And internally, I struggled. And then my father, I didn't find out who my dad was until 2010. I was going to say, it wasn't that long ago. Um, And I never wanted to. So if you had asked younger me, my logic was my father never wanted to stick around. So I didn't care to meet him. And it was a trauma response. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not know that until I got older and, you know, started seeing the therapist and, you know, I met Kyle and the dynamic changed and we started talking about families and I'm like, oh, but I really need to know the other side of who I am Mm -hmm. because we want to have children and we want to build a family and, you know, that, so it wasn't until 2010 that I found my dad and that experience within itself was traumatic because my mom was very young when she had me, she was, she had just turned 19 um, and she actually did not know who my dad was. It was between two different people. So the way I was raised is my aunt was like my mom, my uncle, who she was with for until I was probably in eighth grade, um, was like my dad. Um, but the number one spot for me was always my grandfather. Yeah. He was always my go-to. My grandparents played a very big role in my life. And when we talk about family expectations, we will get into how they molded the decisions that I've made and things that I've done. We talked about one earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, But even, you know, the dynamic with them could be a little traumatic because I always lived my life according to pleasing them and making them happy. And sometimes it did cost me my happiness. Yeah. Um, Very early on in age, I knew that I had something wrong with me. And I think it was probably when my aunt and uncle split was the first bout of depression that I felt. And I felt very out of place. Um, And I feel like very early on abuse stepped in. Mm -hmm. Um, I was paddled as a kid. And I will never forget one summer we were in summer camp and I don't know what we did. I can't recall probably because I blocked it out. Mm -hmm. Um, It was something and we were paddled so hard that we were not allowed to go to summer camp because my aunt at the time was scared. Somebody was going to see the bruises and call DCF and we were going to be taken, but I couldn't sit for a week. We weren't allowed to go swimming. Like we were not allowed to leave the house until the bruises were healed. And if we had friends that came over, like we had to wear like pants, we weren't allowed to wear shorts Mm -hmm. because they were even concerned that like a bruise would peek through. Yeah. Um, So it was very traumatic growing up for me. And I think, you know, 
we had talked about it being generational. My grandmother growing up, I don't ever really remember her hitting me, but I had heard stories, you know, and I had always heard if I talked to your grandmother like that, I would have had no teeth in my mouth. Um, I don't ever physically remember her. I think maybe like twice I ever remember her, my grandmother putting her hands on me Yeah, in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have the conversation with my mom and my aunt, you know, when I was speaking to her, it was always, you don't understand the things that she did. You don't understand the things that we saw. And that a hundred percent proved my point that it was generational because I was living the same thing. My grandmother never lost custody of my mom and my aunt, but my great grandmother played a very big part in them growing up and they lived with my great grandmother for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, So it just passed down to the next generation. My mom, it was the same thing. You know, a family member watched, took us and now going to the next generation of my siblings and I, I have David. Yeah. So it has repeated itself, but I think the difference for me is that I always told Kyle, I am very hot-headed, very hot-headed um, when it came to our kids and raising our kids. I didn't want them to grow up in a house where fear controlled everything. Yeah, I think raising kids, there should be a little bit of fear mm-hmm. because you but it's like a respect fear. Yeah. I don't ever want my kids to be so scared. Like there's that meme that I don't ever want my kids to think, oh, my mom's going to kill me. I want my kids, if something happens, to think I have to call my mom. She'll know what to do. Yeah. And that's kind of the logic I go with. So Madison, we talked about it in a previous, you know, podcast. I'm not mommy dearest, but she does get spanked. Mm-hmm. David, that method does not work. Yeah. He is a words kid. Um, And I think as he's gotten older, you know, we had an incident last week where him and my mom have this thing, you know, that they do where, you know, when David will take the trash out or my mom will go somewhere, like they'll lock each other out of the house and it's just something that they do. It's their thing. Kyle will sometimes chime in on it too. And we did it to David. Madison ran and locked the door. And instead of beating on the door, he beat on the glass and shattered the glass in my front door. And my immediate response was, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. And I got very angry because it wasn't a logical thing to do. Mm -hmm. It was for also first thing in the morning. You heard my podcast on children. I'm not a morning person. Um, So I got very angry with him and I told him, you know, why would you do that? It was your typical response. And then I kind of had to backpedal you know, and I had told him, you know, I don't mean to get this upset. And I apologized and said, you know, I don't want to yell at you. I don't want to ever send you to school upset. I don't want you to leave the house not thinking you're not loved because I yelled at you. You know what I mean? I just sometimes want you to think more logically because the reality of it was, had he beaten and turned his hand probably like a half an inch a different way mm-hmm. he would have sliced right into his vein yeah he walked away with like a little scratch but it could have been worse absolutely and you know kyle's not home so now i'm thinking fuck how am i going to fix this we now have a huge you know gaping hole in the glass and 
you know, I had always said money will fix things. And Kyle is good at bringing me down on that. You know, like we'll fix it. It'll get done. Um, but in that moment I panicked and I remember calling Kyle after it happened and telling him like, I feel really bad and I don't want them to think that's my first response. So I've been a lot better. Like even Madison, when she gets in her moments and I'm like losing my shit because I get overstimulated. It happens with parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I will still go in. A lot of our best conversations probably happen when she's going to bed. And I will say, you know, I know this was difficult today. I know that mommy lost her cool, but let's talk about it. Yeah. Do you understand why mommy lost her cool? Do you understand like mommy, what did she do the other day? Uh, she hid from me and I couldn't find her. And I'm like calling her name, calling her name, calling her name. She was in her feelings. She wanted a moment and she hid, but I was to the point of panic. Like Mm -hmm. I looked everywhere in the house. She's not in the house. I looked everywhere outside. She's not outside. She's not in the car. She's not like, and my immediate response is, holy fuck, somebody came on this property. It took her because occasionally she'll get mad and be like, I'm going to stand on the road and I'm finding a new family. She's emotional. That happens. Mm-hmm. Um, or she'll just be like, I'm going to live outside. I don't want to live in this house anymore. But you hear these horror stories, mm-hmm. you know, and here I am thinking, oh, my God, the worst happened. And that's a lot where my fight or my flight came in um, that we've talked about, you know, in previous podcasts. So growing up, I was always told to always expect the worst because that's what you're going to get. Okay. So anything that happened, I was basically told it wasn't my grandparents, you know, it was my usually my aunt that, you know, prime example, I have always been heavier. Mm-hmm. It's just how I was built, genetics come into play. Um, so I was always told, you know, don't ever expect to have a boyfriend because when you look like that, you're not gonna get what you want. Don't expect to get this role in the school play because they're going to give it to this girl because she looks better than you. Don't expect to find an outfit that you want because you're just not going to find it in your size. So those kind of things, you know, you were not allowed to be vulnerable. My aunt would literally look at you and be like, why the fuck are you crying? Shut the fuck up. So when I get angry now, when I become vulnerable and somebody sees that side, that is me going back to my childhood trauma of thinking you're weak because you're crying because you're getting upset because you are being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that. Um, so that's where that comes in. And my whole life from what I can remember was fight or flight. I physically remember being in fist fights with my aunt at six o'clock in the morning and the household she would run is she worked nights. She would come home Blare music at five o'clock in the morning, wake us all up, and make us clean the entire house every Sunday. That's nice. It's probably why I'm not a morning person either. Probably. Um, and if we didn't, she would literally come in and beat the living shit out of us. Alcohol played a huge role because she drank. Mm-hmm. Um, so she would start drinking at five o'clock in the morning. And if we didn't do what she said... There was no not doing what she said. Yeah. And I think as I got older, I became angrier and realized this isn't fucking normal. I mean, my 18th birthday, she almost killed my sister. 
she sat on top of her neck and tried to suffocate her. And I remember having to pull her off, like telling her, get the fuck off of her. Mm-hmm. So all of these things, I think, factor into, one, the person that I am and the responses that I have to different situations because it's unresolved trauma. Um, one of the responses that we got, you know, is it generational? Can you break trauma curses? Mm-hmm. Somebody had said mm-hmm. yes and yes. Somebody had said, yes, I'm living proof of overcoming both addiction and abuse. Yeah. So I think that's a huge thing. My family, I grew up seeing nothing but alcoholism. My grandmother struggles with it now. Verbal abuse, physical abuse. And, excuse me, I think, you know, looking into having a child, I'm sure I'm not alone when I say, you know, I never want to raise my child like that. Yeah. And, you know, Madison will tell you to this day, I, every day I say, why are you so beautiful? Why are you so beautiful? Do you know you're the most beautiful girl in the world? And I want her to have that logic because I want her to know that she is beautiful mm-hmm. and to see that because I didn't have that. I would get like rare special occasions where I'd be like, oh, you look so beautiful. But that was about it. Mm-hmm. I want her to feel that from herself and to know that no matter what. And she's like, but I'm not the most beautiful girl in the world. What if somebody else? I'm like, you're the most beautiful girl to me and you will always be. Yeah. You know, and that's just something that I've instilled in her. Cause I feel like with girls, especially that is something, you know, you talked about weight and your expectations with that. I don't want my child to go through life, not knowing her worth and always comparing herself to what an expectation is. 100%. I want her to be very comfortable. And David too, David has a lot of insecurities with different things. And that goes through the abuse, you know, that my sister, my sister was a generational trauma child she passed it down to her child. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of insecurities that David has that I'm trying to break. <clears throat> and I get frustrated because mm-hmm. he's been mm-hmm. in a safe spot for five years. Mm-hmm. He's always had a safe spot with me. I mean, but consistently it's been five years. And I constantly have to remind him one of the issues that he had was food. Mm-hmm. There were times where, you know, a little backstory about my nephew and how my sister actually lost custody of him was when he was four years old. My sister lived in North Carolina. She had moved after the family had to have an intervention with her due to alcoholism and drug use and addiction. Um, She moved back to North Carolina and locked my nephew in a closet to go to work. He was four. Tell me about that. And when the police found him, he had got out of the closet and walked a mile to the neighbor's house because where they lived was like mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere to the neighbor's house, knocked on the door at four years old and said, do you have any food? I'm hungry. And when the police found him, there was no furniture in the house except a bed in the room. There was drug paraphernalia all over the house. And there was a half of a ham sandwich and a glass of water. That's all she left him with. And when you talk to him, like even when he was with his dad, you know, his dad would struggle with financially. And I would say, you know, what were some dinners that your dad made? And he's like, oh, some nights I would just have a can of tuna. That was my dinner. So even now, five years later, I deal with like him gorge eating and I have to remind him like, 
It's not going to be taken away. It's not going to be taken. You're always going to have food. And I tell him, out of five years that you've been here, have you ever missed a meal? No. Out of five years that you've been here, has there ever not been food? No. But it's a trauma response. Absolutely. So it's almost compared to, like, they say people that are in jail. Mm -hmm. You know, when they get out, they scarf their food because if you don't eat it, you don't get it. Yeah. So that's a generational thing that I'm trying to break because I don't want him to pass it down to his kids and think, you know, well, you have to eat what you can get because you don't know when your next meal is going to be here. Or Mm -hmm. I don't think he'll ever have that problem. I think David will be wildly successful, but I want to break these things. And it's heartbreaking to watch a child go through it. So for me growing up, I didn't understand it. Them now having children I don't understand how some of the things that were said and done happened. Mm-hmm. I understand parents lose their cool. I understand it's very hard. Parenting is very difficult. Yeah. But to physically put a child through the ringer where you beat them to the point that they're bruised and they can't see their friends. Or I remember my senior year of high school, I was kept home because my mom had said something. My aunt, excuse me, had said something. And I had had like a slick remark because I was at that age. Yeah, of course. I was 18, actually. And her immediate response was to punch me dead in my mouth. And she busted my lips wide open and said, you want to respond like an adult? Now you can look like an adult that if they had this conversation, that's how they would look. So I remember going to school and everybody saying, what the fuck happened to your face? And I said, well, I wasn't here for two days because I ran into the sliding glass door or some shit like that. Yeah. And constantly having to make those excuses. Yep. So, I mean, my kid now, Madison tumbles, and she's a kid. She plays, and she plays hard. <clears throat> she's my tomboy. We talked about this in our children episode. And she also bruises very easily. And I freak out sending her to school with bruises because I'm like, oh, my God, these people are going to think that I beat her. It's not the case. Yeah. But – I understand where that aspect came, but my logic is too completely different. Mm -hmm. I didn't physically harm my child and I'm trying to keep them, you know, to keep the secret in. Yeah. I'm genuinely concerned that someone would think that. Unfortunately, it is a thing. And it's a thing. It is a thing. Working in a school, working, you know, in a house that dealt with domestic and sexual abuse, domestic violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking, like, those are the things that you have to look for. And those are the things that are noticed when you're a teacher that you report. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I always have that guard up. Um, and I really don't. My biggest thing that I always say is I want my kids to know they were loved. I want them to know their self-worth. And I want them to know at the end of the day, no matter what, that I always tried I always gave them my all, even on days that it was, it did not seem like I was. Yeah. And I want them to walk away remembering the good. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to have a traumatic childhood. And sometimes I worry that, you know, Kyle being away, I worry that was trauma on Madison. David, you know, not being with his parents, I worry is going to affect him in the long run. And it's going to be traumatic. So my logic growing up was I saw so many fucked up things from my trauma. I knew when I grew up, I did not want to do that. I stayed away from alcohol, mostly. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like everybody drank when they were teenagers. Yeah. But for me, 
even now when I drink, I'll drink here or there, but it's not like a, I have to get blackout drunk. Yeah. Because I don't like the feeling. I don't like the feeling. I don't like, uh, kind of not being in control. Mm-hmm. That's why one of the reasons I don't drink. I don't like not knowing my how I'm going to respond if something happens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then I have kids and then I think about the kids. God forbid something happens, you know. So I took a very different route, you know, and the family expectations that were placed on me from my grandparents, not from the woman who raised me, was the expectations I followed. And I'm kind of glad I did because it led me to where I am. Mm -hmm. But I was telling my cousin earlier today, I am the black sheep of the family for a complete opposite reason. Yeah. The black sheep is usually the one that was like always in the problems and everything like that. I am the opposite. I am the black sheep because I am the only one that has their shit together. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk into my my siblings, I don't speak to my sister because of the things that she's done to my nephew and the turmoil that comes with that. Mm-hmm. And then I actually have a brother who we don't speak. Yeah. I have a niece that I've never met. Yeah. And it's not that I did anything to him, but the family trauma that was placed on him while he was growing up, you know, he was the last one. I had been gone at that point, you know, I was with Kyle and living my own life. And I feel guilty looking back now that maybe I should have been a little more involved because that's what big sisters do. But in the same sense, I was fighting my own demons Mm -hmm. and my own trauma generational trauma that I was trying to break to build my life with Kyle. Um, But he speaks to no one. He doesn't speak to anyone in our family. He speaks to the man who my aunt was with, my uncle, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. um, and his family, like his wife and her Mm -hmm. family. But everyone else is cut out. So I've never met my niece. She's never met her cousins. The last time he saw Madison, she was two. The last time he saw David, he was seven. So, I mean, there's a lot of unresolved trauma. And, you know, now he has a kid. Mm -hmm. So he's dealing with that. He works for the fire department, you know, so he's very straight and narrow, which I'm thankful for. And I never doubted that he would get there. Mm -hmm. And I know he's a phenomenal father. Um, But it just sucks because it really shows how fucked up our family is family functions we can't have normal family functions because nobody can get along yeah i think you know i i appreciate where those fears come from yeah especially when it comes to david because of what he's been through in such a you know young life yeah you know he's only 13 years old and the things that he's seen and he shouldn't have seen he shouldn't have seen and honestly as much as it sucks to say, I feel like there's probably things that he went through or saw or had done that we don't know. Oh, and it shows. And, but I will tell you that he has such a better chance. Yeah. And will grow into an even more amazing man as he gets older. Yeah. Because he has you and Kyle. Yeah. And because you guys took him in and Kyle shows him what it's like to, you know, be there for your family and take care of your family. And, you know, we talked about 
the importance of showing your children a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. And I feel like even through the issues, you and Kyle are able to show something, show him something stable. Yeah. That for the first half of his life, he didn't see. see. And I feel like, whereas what he went through is devastating. Mm -hmm. He lucked out so much that you did take the road that you took and that you cared enough to take him in. Yeah. Because there aren't, you know, there are families that wouldn't do that. Yeah. That would just be like, you know, you made your bed, you had a kid, you lay in it. Well, especially Kyle, we had talked about this previously. Yep. He didn't have to take on that responsibility. No. You know, we were still planning on expanding our family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when it came time and I have this little boy in front of me that says, I don't want to go back to my dad. Can I just live with you? He could have easily said, absolutely not. And that wasn't what was said. You know, he's like, all right, let's go look at bunk beds. All right, how can we make this work? How can, you know, let's go enroll. You need to get the paperwork. Let's enroll him in school. Let's do this. And, you know, and he's literally fostered everything that David wants. And he shows him the different things. You know, David's father is involved. Mm -hmm. Is he as involved as he should be? No. Am I okay with it? Yes, because he does have Kyle. And there's, you know, there's tension there. And I worry that that causes trauma with David because David is very soft-hearted. And I feel like he cannot pick one or the other because he feels like he's going to hurt somebody. And I understand that because I grew up without my mom and my dad. Yeah. So when the time came, I didn't want to hurt them. You know, my dad, I still tell them to this day, my grandfather will always have that number one spot Mm -hmm. because my whole life, I mean, my grandfather was there for my first steps, my first words. He taught me how to ride a bike. He taught me how to drive a car. Like you, I'm sorry, but you weren't there for those things. And I love my father, but even still to this day, his own family trauma keeps us from having the relationship I would really love to have. You know, I love my dad more than anything. Um, But the way my grandmother will tell you, the way she raised him, family was not an emphasis. Yeah. So my dad is kind of the same way. I mean, he has kids and he has to take care of his kids. But, you know, my dad doesn't come down from Madison's dance recitals. Mm -hmm. My my dad does not, you know, the little things that I really want him to be there for. You know, mental health plays a big part of that. His physical health plays a big part of that. Um. But when I looked at, you know, having a father and Madison is his only grandchild, Mm -hmm. he, when he got married and had his family, I have two brothers, Mm -hmm. so he didn't have girls. And for the longest time, I was the only girl in the family. Yeah. Um, So you would, you know, I'd hoped hearing you have a grandchild, like that would spark the interest of let me make up for that kind of. Not that he doesn't love his granddaughter, mm-hmm. but that's, you know, the big moments in life that I really want him to step up and be there. I feel like he kind of falls flat. And my mom is the same. My mom is a fantastic Nana, but my mom also, there was a lot of trauma between my mom and I because I didn't have her growing up. And I had just told my grandfather today, you know, my mom is very immature mentally sometimes and stuck in like that teenage mindset. So sometimes I feel more like I'm the parent 
Yeah. And she's the child, mm-hmm. which can be infuriating because she's a grown-ass woman. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, I just don't – my life could have been very different. And, again, I don't want to discredit my aunt who raised me. I don't want to discredit the people that did step in. Um, and I'm hoping that that's the same sense for David. But when you're talking about those that are listening, you know, when you think about your family dynamics, especially those that, you know, the family you create, that will be something we talk about. I think when you come from a family with a background in things that are traumatic, like addiction, Mm -hmm. mental health, abuse, abuse, you know, you factor in the things that you went through and you try to, as much as you can, fight the, the norm of mm-hmm. what you know. Yeah. So I think it's very hard. And it took me a very long time to get through. There's still things that I'm not over. Mm-hmm. There's still things, you know, you had talked about the day that I bought my wedding dress. Yep. <laughs> and my grandmother was there. And I had her there because she was obviously one of the most important people in my life. And the dress that I had wanted versus the dress that she wanted and the different reaction on my face and you knew immediately and how it upset you, that was a source of trauma because I was living, that was a family expectation. Yeah. My whole wedding was to appease my grandparents and not in the sense of I had to get married. I had to. No, but the type of wedding. Yes. And then so if it was, was up to me and Kyle, we would have been in a field of wildflowers somewhere. And we would have been wearing blue jeans and like cowboy boots. You and know, we but. all been in camo. Eat, probably. No. No. Like that pretty camo that I got Madison when she was little. Yeah, but it probably still wouldn't have been camo. That's good. It probably would have been like blue jeans and a white shirt. And the girls would have been in like pink Still probably. Killing me. But toss. very different. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have worn cowboy boots instead of heels. Um, I'm good either way. But I feel like, you know, we got married when my grandparents got married. And we did the black tie and we did the traditional. And not that I regret it. I look back and, you know, those are the memories that I have mm-hmm. um, of Kyle, you know, having a dance with his mom and me dancing with Mimi and, you know, us having my grandfather walked me down the aisle Mm because I never thought of getting married but I always knew that if I did he was going to be the one Mm -hmm. so I'm glad I got that um but it's all you know it the way I react the way I built my life people that have this background I think when you start to think about the family you create a lot of what you do stems from what you've seen yeah what you've been through Mm -hmm. um you know when we talk about domestic violence you know that's a hard conversation Mm -hmm. i'm gonna have to have with madison and david yeah you know david has seen his mom now be put in the back of the cop car four times and it was all due to domestic violence so a functioning relationship on his mom's side is not something he's used to and his dad you know he has a track record too for that he's never been arrested but, you know, his dad tends to cling to a relationship that he's in and, you know, become all about that person. And my, my sister was very similar. 
But I feel like when you're at such a young, delicate age, you know, my sister left him. Yeah. When he was little to go be with another guy. And then eventually she wound up getting him back. And then, you know, she lost custody and everything went through. But memories, core memories that he has built, a lot of them are watching his mom being put in the back of a cop car. Yeah. Or watching her get the shit beat out of her. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, I don't want him. There was a point there where my sister. I had tried to give her the chance to be there. So during the pandemic, pandemic, the man she was li- with literally beat her to the point of her almost dying. She was put in ICU. I remember you telling me about and that. And the paramedics, when they called, literally said, had we got there a minute later, she would have been dead. She broke her jaw in like four different places. He fractured her nose. She had burn marks where he had taken a machete and heated up it up on a torch and burned her all over her body. She had chop marks from where he tried to take the machete and tried to chop into her. I mean, when I went to her apartment to get her things to separate, like, and flee, mm-hmm. um, it literally looked like a horror scene, like a scene out of, like, Scream or something. There was blood from the parking lot all the way into the apartment and scattered throughout the apartment. He had knocked her into their shower was like um, glass block. Mm-hmm. He had knocked her so hard that glass block had fallen. He had put her into a mirror. He put her through a glass table. He put her through a window. The bed literally looked like somebody was murdered because there was just blood everywhere. And basically they had said she almost bled out because he took the handle of the machete and repeatedly beat her where he cracked her skull. And big sister and me scooped in who had been through, you know, a previous domestic violence relationship. And I wanted her to be around for her son. Yeah. So we moved her in and David went through a phase where I think it triggered him having her there. Yeah. Because it gave him that that flight or fight. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And he didn't know, oh, when is she going to be put in a cop car again? Um, So he had a phase there where we really had to get on to him because he would hit Madison. And I think one of my initial responses one time, he, like, picked her up and threw her by her arms. And this, she was so little. Because you're talking 2020, we got David in 2019, so this was still, you know, he hadn't even been there a year. She was four mm-hmm. uh, or five. She went to just went five. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, and I remember saying to him, do you want to wind up, like, and I named my sister's husband. Mm-hmm. You want to wind up in jail like him? Because that's what happens when you do these things to women. And I didn't want to be like, he went through that phase where he's like, I fucking hate women. You know what I mean? How come girls can get away with this? And I'm like, that's how you wind up in jail for domestic violence because you think that you're superior. Mm -hmm. And I had to have a conversation with him. And I remember sitting him down. It did not happen then because my sister was still there. But, you know, down the line, there was some turmoil between them and sitting him down and telling him, listen, at the end of the day, 
don't put your hands on a woman because a guy is always, yes, a guy will fault more than a woman. Women do go to jail for domestic violence. Don't think that they don't. Yep. I said, but nine times out of 10, men don't know their own strengths. Mm-hmm. Prime example is you with her. You weigh 115 pounds. She weighs 46. Yeah. Oh, you're calling me fat. No, I'm not calling you fat. You just don't understand how strong you are and how one of your movements could instantly break a bone. He's done it with me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm a lot bigger than him. And I'm like, dude, you don't realize your own strength. Like you're hurting me. And I said, I don't want you to fall default to the traumatic experience of you seen your whole life just because you aren't self-aware. Yeah. You know? And he's like, well, I don't know what that means. I'm like, and I had to break that down. And he's like, well, that makes sense. You know, I always wanted to protect my mom. So now when I get physical, I'm thinking about protecting my mom. And it didn't dawn on me until he said it. And I was like, oh, shit. So it's very, it, and it's heartbreaking. I've had conversations with like his school guidance counselor and different things like that. I've, you know, my friend Danielle, who has dealt with all different kinds of backgrounds of that. And we've had conversations. My biggest thing is I just don't want him. He's such a good kid. Mm-hmm. And I don't want him to grow up thinking what he saw is normal. I don't want him to hate women because of he hates his mom. Mm -hmm. Because at the root of it, the guidance counselor has literally told me that's what it stems down to. He hates his mom for what she put him through. He hates his mom because she's not there. He hates his mom because, like I felt growing up, she didn't have that normal dynamic. And I think Madison was a target for a while because... She had her mom and her dad. Yeah. And he was seeing a functioning mother and a father parenting a child. Yeah. And he didn't have that. He still doesn't have that. It's envy. You know what I mean? He, I mean, he has Kyle and I, but to say mom and dad, he, I don't think he will ever have that ever mm-hmm. again. Yeah. So you've had to push through that. And it's been heartbreaking. Some of the things that, you know, he'll reveal to the, the therapist and some of the things even that come out of his mouth. And I'm just like, how do you respond to that? Yeah. You know, how do you tell a 13 year old kid who's still figuring out the world that you're going to get through this? Mm -hmm. You're going to, I promise you, you know, you're going to get through this. We will talk about it. We will get through it. I just don't want you to go through the world angry because I feel like that's what happened to me. And that's why I'm so confrontational is because my voice was so diminished growing up mm-hmm. and everything that I felt was so minimized because, you know, it, mental health, that was a big thing in my house. When I had said, I, I'm not normal, there's something wrong with me. I was told to shut the fuck up and get over it. I was being dramatic. And even older age, having Madison and saying, you know, I was diagnosed with severe anxiety disorder. And I was having, um, there was one point in time where I was rushed to the hospital. I thought I was having a heart attack Mm -hmm. and it was panic. Yeah. And I remember my grandfather looking at me like, what do you have to panic about? Why are you so, there's nothing, what is your, why are you so anxious? What do you have to be anxious about? You know, and I really had to sit down and tell him, listen, how you handle something and how I handle something are two completely different things. Absolutely. You grew up in a time where, you know, my great grandmother and my great grandfather were Cuban and Puerto Rican. They literally immigrated here. Yeah. Um, 
you don't talk about feelings. You don't talk about emotion. You know, I remember him telling me growing up, if they did, you know, they would get punched in the face or they would be sent to do chores or you just didn't talk about that. So when you're getting into me now talking about emotions and crying because I have severe anxiety and somebody telling me you have nothing to be anxious about, it's traumatic. Yeah. And I don't want that, you know, Madison has anxiety. And mm-hmm. I remember having a conversation with my dad because my mm-hmm. dad has a lot of mental health issues and saying, I'm petrified she's going to turn into what I was. Yeah. Because it took me so many years to be able to see a therapist, to be able to get a label on it, to be able to treat it, to be able to openly talk about it. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't. He's like, well, she sees you cry. That's where she gets it from. I'm like, dad, that's a really shitty thing to say. I mean, you're partly right, but I also don't want her to think she immediately has to panic. And this started in kindergarten. She had her first panic attack halfway through her kindergarten year to the point she was hyperventilating. And I lost my shit because I'm like, how do I tell a six-year-old to calm down? Mm-hmm. How do I get her to breathe? Yeah. How do I tell her? Like, I'm like, what are you, what are you scared about? What are you anxious about? Like, and I remember being so heightened because I'm like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? It's different when it happens to you because you're like, okay, well, I failed the test. Oh, well, I'm losing my job. Oh, well, I'm Mm -hmm. at six. What are you anxious about? Yeah. And she was great in school. She had friends. She was social. She was dancing. You know what I mean? So I feel like I really have had to step back. And step away from the norms of what I know. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about creating, you know, our family, it's, this is what I don't want. Yeah. So I do think it can, that generational curse can be broken. I agree. I feel like it depends on the person. Mm -hmm. And for those of you that may be listening, that maybe you're thinking, oh shit, like this is exactly how I've lived my life. There are ways to go about it, and I feel like there's healthy ways to go about it. Because even though you're trying to break a generational curse, you may be starting a new one with unhealthy coping mechanisms. Yeah. And I feel like, like for me, if I ever have children, especially a daughter, you know, guys deal with eating disorders as well. But with girls, you know, if I have a daughter, it's very important to me to always instill and her, the same thing you're doing with Madison, mm-hmm. you know, you're beautiful. There's more to the world than body image yes. and stuff like that. But also if I'm feeling down about myself, not showing them. I, so I had the same logic, but I also think in some sense, they kind of need to see that to see that they're not alone. And maybe have the conversation of this is how we can get through this. But at a certain age. Yes. Because yes. when I was hearing I'm fat and this looks disgusting and I can't wear anything and all of that, I was very young. Yeah. And that was what gave me a different viewpoint of how to see the world. Yeah. Because I didn't know anything else. Yeah. And then, you know, the abusive relationship happened. I got kicked out of school. My body changed. Yeah. You know, my whole world imploded. And the eating disorder is what I had. Yeah. And that's very important to me. Because I've been in publics and in different places where I've heard, like, 
six-year-old girls tell their mothers, oh, I can't have dessert tonight. I didn't earn it. And in my brain, I'm like, what the fuck are you saying to your child that they think they don't earn We've said that, but it usually along the lines of you can't have a piece of cake because you didn't even eat any dinner. Yeah, that's different. I feel like that's not necessarily... No, it's never about body image. It's, yeah. You, you have to eat food. Like, yes. you have to eat something. You can't just have junk. Yeah. No, this little girl and the other ones that I've seen were solely based on body image. Yeah. And at six years old... That's... No. You should not no. be worried about body image. No. And, like, I ha- I saw a girl at Publix the other day that was telling her mom... Or, oh, no. I think I posted this online. The mother was weighing her daughter at Publix. Yeah. And was congratulating her daughter for losing weight. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I wanted to turn to her and just be like, you know what? What that says doesn't matter. You're beautiful either way. Yeah. Because, you know, I've spent the majority of my life, over 20 years, worried about what the scale says. Yeah. And no matter how low the number got, it was never Never. good enough. Because to me, with body dysmorphia and all of that, and we'll get to that in another episode about eating disorders, but for me, nothing was going to be good enough. Yeah. Because I had it in my head, what I saw was very different than what was on the scale. Because it was like, oh, you can be, you know, blah, 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 pounds – but, you know, your arm moves your, you know, yeah. when you move it. So, therefore, I'm still fat. And, I, you know, I, I've dealt with that. And then, you know, when, the first time I got into recovery and I gained weight and I hit triple digits, mm-hmm. I was mortified. Yeah. I was horrified. Like, I didn't want to leave the house. I was wearing baggy clothes all the time. Like, I thought there was something wrong with me because I always – equated weight with worth Mm -hmm. for me it was never the same with anyone else yeah you know I tell all my friends no matter weight size height whatever they could be purple and blue and I don't care yeah to me all my friends are beautiful Mm -hmm. but for me it was very different it was a complete double standard yeah and it was because I watched my grandfather hate on his body and mm-hmm. I watched my mother hate on her body. And I even watched my brother at one point hate on his body. Yeah. You know, when my brother was doing wrestling, he went through a bout of bulimia. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I looked around and I saw, you know, society showing that, you know, these women that have absolutely nothing on their bones are, you know, what constitutes beauty. Yeah. And I wanted to feel like I belonged. And I thought that the only way to feel that way was to be sick. Yeah. And that's something I've dealt with a lot is that I've dealt with the mindset that if I'm not sick, no one's going to care about me. Yeah. And I think that's been a lot of the reasons why I relapse. Mm -hmm. And because I got the attention from my family that I was longing for yeah. when I was sick. Yeah. And it was kind of instilled in me this like mindset that if you're sick or something bad happens, you get attention. Yeah. Because, you know, my brother was going through a very unhealthy relationship. He got a lot of attention. 
when I was sick, I got a lot of attention. Yeah. And if I wasn't sick, you know, during the time period where my mom was like, oh, she's not eating. It means she's not hungry. Yeah. And, you know, had her head in the sand about the eating disorder when I was young. I wasn't getting attention like I got when I was sick and acknowledged that I was sick. Yeah. And I, I dealt with that, you know, tomorrow is my one year actually right now it's (laughs) 1am is my one year of recovery. And over the last few weeks, besides what's gone on in my personal life, I've had these random thoughts that like, I didn't want to get to my one year. Mm -hmm. And I thought of relapsing, mm-hmm. not because of what's going on in my personal life, but because I'm like, you know, do I really deserve to get to one year? Yeah. Like, do it, like, did I earn it? Like the piece of cake, did I did it, earn yeah. to get to one year of recovery? And I'll think about, you know, the, the issues I've had with my family lately and think like that sick girl mindset, like maybe they'll care more yeah. or they'll be more supportive or they'll, you know, hold my hand through this whole situation if I'm sick. Yeah. And it takes a lot, you know, to get out of that mindset because in a sense that, you know, that did cause trauma for me Yeah, because to think that like the times when I was like in high school, the times I got the most attention from my father for a period of time was when I was sick. Yeah. And when my father was not giving me attention was when I got into my most unhealthy relationships because I just wanted to belong. I just wanted to mm-hmm. feel like I belonged somewhere and that, you know, I had an identity mm-hmm. and I took on the sick girl identity. Yeah. You know, and I that's always been who I am. I've always been the sick girl and I've almost like I've enjoyed that identity because yeah. it gave me an identity. I didn't enjoy the side effects. Mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy almost dying. Yeah. I don't enjoy the hospitals and you know, I'm not going to lie. I enjoyed the morphine a little bit, but <laughs> you know, like I didn't enjoy, you know, when I was living in New York, Leaf had to take me to the bathroom yeah. and help me go to the bathroom. And honestly, like, that was one of the grossest experiences in any of my relationships Yeah, because it was on my period. Yeah. And I was very high on morphine and, you know, honestly, like throughout that whole process, because when we were together over the course of the four and a half years we were together, he probably missed, I don't know, maybe like four or five days of work, mm-hmm. which he worked on commission. Yeah. So he missed out on money and work because I had to go to the hospital because I wasn't eating or I was purging or I was doing this. I was doing that. And I had to be taken to the hospital. Yeah. And he would sit there. He got to the point where he was, he had a book in his backpack just in case we had to go to the hospital so that while I was high on morphine, he could sit there and read. Yeah. He never left my side. He missed work to come see me in Philly for treatment. Mm-hmm. And as selfish as it sounds, because of that, you know, you get attention when you're sick. I think I stayed in my eating disorder longer yeah. than I, you know, obviously longer than I should have because I almost died. But, you know, I just, 
I wanted people to care about me. Mm-hmm. And I had this mentality that people don't care unless you're sick. Yeah. And that's a really sick way of thinking. It's trauma. And, you know, and I, I don't want to ever put that on my child. Yeah. I don't want to ever put that, you know, on my child that I may never have, but whatever. Um, And I don't want that to be put on, like, any of, like, my nieces. Yeah. Like, you know, or my nephews. Yeah. But, you know, especially nieces, because there is this societal belief that girls have to be a certain way. Yeah. And that's gotten better over the last few years. Mm -hmm. It's gotten a lot better. But it's still there. But it's still Still there. It's absolutely still there. And I don't think we'll ever fully get rid of it. No. So I think that it's up to the women in their lives, mm-hmm. whether a parent, an aunt, you know, sibling, sibling it does not yeah. matter. People, especially the women in their lives, need to be able to kind of have a united front of getting, trying to get past their trauma so that the next generation doesn't have that. I agree a hundred percent. I think, I think that's, you know, I think self love Mm -hmm. is something that needs to be taught a lot earlier than we were taught it. Yeah. And we do that, you know, with Madison, that the, the line in the help, you was smart, you was kind, you was important. Mm -hmm. I started saying that from the time she was three months. And I, you know, on the difficult days that she would have when she was having panic attacks, I would say, repeat after me. You are smart. I'm smart. Nope. Say it again. I'm smart. You are kind. I'm kind. You're important. I'm important. You matter. I matter. You're heard. So it's these constant, you know, affirmations. Kim did that with Olivia the other day. Yeah. We were, and there was nothing, you know, going on. She was skipping up and down thing yeah. at a point but it was still you know you're smart you're mm-hmm. you know these positive affirmations that are so important and madison you know a part of my heartbreak with her is that she's a perfectionist she learned it from her mom mm-hmm. i am a perfectionist you've known me for 15 years mm-hmm. and i panic when things don't pan out so you know we see it with dance the way she is excelling in dance when she can't nail a trick, she is very hard on herself. And her teachers have told me the same thing. You know, if she's working on something and she can't get it, she, like, it, it weighs on her. Yeah. You know, and I constantly have to have that conversation. She'll say things like, you know, I suck. Why can't I just be good? I'm like, you don't. Stop saying that. You're learning. It's mm-hmm. part of learning. Mommy doesn't know the, know the answers. You know, I took a math course for my master's and I failed class. Yeah. And I remember crying, and she's like, well, why are you upset, Mom? And I told her, yeah. listen, this is proof. You know, Mommy's an adult, and I worked really hard. You saw all the books that I read, and Mommy didn't pass. Mm-hmm. So and she's like, you didn't? And I'm like, no, Mommy got a bad grade. Mm-hmm. You did? I want her to see those human moments yeah, because I want her to understand it's okay. You know, I say this to David all the time with his grades. You know, and my growing up, you got to see, you got your ass beat. Yeah. And, you know, I don't 
we we've talked I don't take that route with him Mm -hmm. but you know I've told him you know he brought home an F on his progress report one time and they have I don't know if it's Broward too but we have what's called like a parent gateway where we log on and it will literally give me a detailed breakdown of every class assignment homework assignment anything that was turned into a grade what he got when it was due what class what time like Mm -hmm. everything because they don't use paper everything is online Mm -hmm. um and i remember being like how do you have an f if it was in language arts i'm like dude how do you have an f in language arts like that's your core class yeah i don't know and I remember logging on, I'd be like, oh, you didn't turn in four homework assignments. Oh, uh, you got like a three out of 10 on your quiz that you were reading on the book that you've been working on. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, getting upset with him. And I told him, you know, I calmed down and I said, I don't want you to think that you can't fail. But if you are not an F student. Yeah. You know what I mean? If C's and D's were your norm, we would get a tutor. We would work through it. That's not your norm. You mm-hmm. are not, you are like an AB kid. Yeah. I said, and I don't want you, you know, he cried last year because he got B honor roll. He, the whole year, he got straight A's. The last quarter or the third quarter before the fourth, mm-hmm. he got one B and it messed up his entire, he had had straight A's since second grade. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you literally cried because you got AB honor roll and not A honor roll. Like you hold your standard. I'm proud of you no matter what. Yeah. I said, but I want you to hold your own standard because at the end of the day, you are not an F kid. Yeah. You know, this was just you rushing or you not wanting to do it. And he's like, I hate, I was like, I get it. I hate math. I failed math. I failed math many, many, many I said, many so times. I get it a hundred percent. Some things you're, he's like, I don't, it's not that I like math. I just happen to be good at it. I said, well, that wasn't even English. I just happen to be really good with words. So that's how I got through it. Mm-hmm. I said, I understand it, but I don't want you to think, I got an F, I can't show you. No, let's talk about it. Why did you get an F? Yeah. What is going on? Do I need to, you know, I said, do I need to have a conference with your teacher? Do I need to move classes? Is there something going on? Is it the way the teacher is teaching? Because that's a thing. Absolutely. You know, and he's like, no, I just, I didn't want to do the work. And I'm like, all right, well, we're not going to do that. Yeah. You're going to go in. Let's email your teacher and see if you can get this grade up. Mm -hmm. So that's a big thing for me, too. You know, I don't want him to think, oh, fuck. Yeah. I can't bring home a bad grade. No, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to find out why do you have this grade. I remember when I was in middle school, right before I transferred to public school. It was, like, sixth grade, Mm -hmm. I think, maybe. I got a bad grade on a science test. And I brought it home and I showed my mom and she got really mad at me and brought me back to the school to get my science book to study so that I could fix the grade. Mm -hmm. I was so terrified of her reaction to that bad grade that I went up the stairs of the school, walked down the back stairs and left and I ran away. And I made my way around Pikesville. Mm -hmm. I made my way to my Hebrew teacher's house. I made my way to somewhere else. I think I called someone from like, I called, I called one of my friends from the teacher's house. I walked over to their house. Like I was just roaming 
Meanwhile, my mom's sitting at the school with the, ra- with the rabbi <laughs> hysterically crying because she realizes 30 minutes later, I'm not coming back. Yeah. And I remember my dad picking me up from the boy I was dating at the time's house. I was best friends with his brother. Um, and he picked me up and he screamed at me. And it wasn't because of the grade. Yeah. It was because I upset off. my mom. Yeah. That's, you know, that's always been my dad's thing. Yeah. Is my dad loves my brother and me. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, I used to dad, have a doubt about that. Yeah. <laughs> but I know my dad loves us. But his world is your mom. Is my mom. Yeah. And, you know, we were listening to that song earlier, like my father. Mm-hmm. And it, it plays true. You know, my dad's not the big, like, romantic type. But you can see the way that he is with my mom, how much he loves her. He's very loyal to your mom. You know, he, he's completely devoted to my mother and you know, it's, it's beautiful to see, but there are times where over the years I've upset her so much that he's screamed and lashed out on me Yeah, because she was hurting. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that relationship now. Yeah. Back then. You did not. It's not that I didn't. It's I was too numb mm-hmm. that I didn't understand yeah. other people's emotions. So, like, there was one day my mom was hitting her head against the wall, literally, because I was self-harming. I wasn't eating. And I was in the back room of the house in the floor room. Mm-hmm. And she was yelling at me at something because just trying to get through to me. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't like I did something wrong screaming. It was like, if I don't speak to you loudly, I don't think you're going to hear me. She wasn't me. talking to you. She was talking, wanted to talk through you. Yeah. Yeah. And I just stared at her. Like I was just, it was like empty. Yeah. It was going in, but it wasn't thinking. Not at all. Nothing anybody said back then yeah. sunk into me. I was too sick, mm-hmm. too numb. And my dad walked into the room. My mom was on the ground by the door, banging her head against the wall and crying Yeah, because nothing got through to me. And I literally, this is my biggest regret in my entire life was being able to sit there and see my mom doing that and crying and hurting and my dad trying to comfort her while also still trying to get through to me and being able to look at the two of them and not care. And not feel a thing. Yeah. To be that detached from my family is my biggest regret. Yeah. But that's also, you know, I got there because of the things I saw when I was younger. Yeah. And the things I heard. Yeah. So, you know, it sucks. And, you know, I hope that I've made up for it over the years. Yeah. Since, you know, finding emotion. Maybe a little too much emotion. <laughs> um, but I still, you know, look back at that sometimes and like it makes me very sad. Yeah. Because I'm like, you know, I, I love my parents, I love my brother, and I like broke our family and yeah. I, I hurt them solely because I was too sick to actually care that I was doing it. Yeah. And like we've rebuilt, you know, but I remember the 
the reason I brought up the the running away from school, I believe that was the day my mom created the box. And we still have the box. Mm-hmm. The box is a figurative box that you go into. And in the box, you cannot get in trouble. So there is no grounding. There is no punishment. There is no yelling. There is no judgment. In the box, you can just speak your truth, mm-hmm. speak what happened, and be listened to and heard. And the rule with the box was we could go into the box to talk to her, mm-hmm. but we couldn't abuse the box. Okay. So it wasn't to be used, you know, if you failed a test. It was to be used if, you know, Greg and I did something stupid and I got smacked in the eye by an exercise band that actually happened <laughs> um, years before, but we could have used it for them. Yeah. Um, you know, I went into the box when I was, you know, being abused. I went into the box when I told her that I needed to get treatment. Yeah. I went into the box, you know, for the most serious things that I needed to speak to her about. I went into the box. I've never abused the sanctity of the box. Yeah. But that has given me the opportunity to actually build my relationship with my mother. Yeah. Because not only have I abided by the rules of the box, so has she. And I talk to most of the parents that I know about the box because I'm pretty sure that that saved our relationship. Yeah. Because if I didn't have that way to just talk to her and was always in fear of being grounded or getting in trouble or getting yelled at or whatever it was, we wouldn't be as close as we are now. Yeah. Because I wouldn't have been able to talk to her without that. We wouldn't have been able to build that kind of trust Mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for the box. Yeah. So I feel like that kind of helped repair some of the damage and some of the trauma. Yeah. I feel like trust is a big thing with family trauma too. Mm-hmm. And feeling safe. Having a place to feel safe. Absolutely. So I think that was a hard pill for me too is, you know, I was sexually molested by my aunt's boyfriend. Yeah. In my sleep. Well, he thought I was sleeping. Mm-hmm. I was not. And when I presented her with it, instead of comforting me, she made me confront him and brought him. And I remember like running out the door and saying like, no, 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 I, I don't want to be, I don't want to do this. I don't want him near me. Like I can't even look at him. And she's like, you're overreacting. No, fuck I'm not. I was a grown adult. I was over 18. So I guess he just figured it was okay. Legal. So it's legal. Um, but if I'm coming, I was not living with her at the time. And I went to stay there for the weekend to spend time with my siblings. Mm-hmm. And I still was sleeping on the couch. He came home and thought I was sleeping. And I remember, like, forcing myself to keep my eyes closed. And I just stiffed. Because mm-hmm. what I didn't know what to do. That was supposed to be my safe space. Yeah. And, you know, when she tells that story, she will tell it very different. That, oh, I kicked him out. And I did. No, you didn't. You literally called him and made him come in the room and say, he would never hurt you. Maybe you were sleeping. Maybe it was a dream. No, the fuck it wasn't. I know what the fuck I felt. I actually remember calling Josh 
mm-hmm. and like crying my eyes out to him. And he was livid. He's like, I need to come down to Florida. Like, do I need to be there when you have this conversation? And I was like, no, I think, you know, and I remember calling her at work and being like, you need to meet me at the house. We need to have a discussion and sitting on my sister's bed shaking because I didn't know how to address it. Yeah. And she's like, I just don't understand. I don't understand. Like, he loves you. He would never. Yeah, well, he fucking did. And I think from that point on, you know, our dynamic changed, obviously, once I went to college and everything like that. But I think at that moment, I realized and, you know, our relationship is basically over right now Mm -hmm. because of things that she's done for her own gain. And but I think at that moment, I realized I will never, ever be safe there with her, period. Yeah. When it factors into her, I realized I was never safe the whole time I was with her mm-hmm. and that from that moment on she will only believe what she wants to believe yeah and if it paints her in a different light then it's always going to be her word against mine yeah and I don't want that yeah. so I think you know you have to make the choice to whether traumatic events shape you and how you respond to them. Um, for anyone that's listening, you know, therapy is great. Wonderful. I feel like there is such a stigma <clears throat> around being in therapy. Absolutely. But I feel like, you know, if you, maybe you're listening to this and you grew up and you're realizing, hey, you know, that was similar to what I've experienced. And you feel certain types of way when it comes to certain things. You probably have traumatic family events Mm -hmm. or expectations and I promise you it is going to benefit you if you're listening and you don't have kids but it's something you plan on I feel like going to therapy and working through those things will help immensely Mm -hmm. um because you can say a hundred percent I'll never do that to my kid but in reality, if you have not addressed the trauma that you went through when that experience presents itself, yeah, it's no. going to be a repeat cycle. Yeah, I know. I excuse me. I didn't start actually working on my trauma mm-hmm. until Mike and I broke up. Yeah. Um, which was only a year ago. Um, a little over a year ago, like fifteen months. It wasn't until that point where I realized that I had a tendency to Mm self-sabotage, that I had a tendency to get into toxic relationships Mm -hmm. with unavailable people, and that I was projecting my fears from my past relationships onto my present ones. And the trauma that I had been through, you know, my self-sabotage was my fight or flight. That was my way of getting myself out of the situation that was maybe getting a little too serious for yeah. me or a little too uncomfortable or made me uneasy. So I would self-sabotage and I've worked very hard to move on from a lot of that I've been through yeah. and to get to the, get to the point where I am now where, you know, planning a future with Canada didn't scare me Yeah, where I was able to actually see that want that Mm -hmm. and not then completely demolish the relationship on my own. 
Um, and that took a lot. And, you know, I've spent, you know, like I said, so many years just wanting to have a place where I belong and yeah. wanting someone's attention. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot through therapy about why it is that I'm that way. Yeah. And so I think therapy is such a wonderful Mm -hmm. thing to do. And I don't understand the stigma with therapy. No. Because, you know, sometimes... Well, sometimes it is, you know, cultural. Sometimes it is generational. Look at my grandfather. He's a prime example. My grandmother is the same way. Oh, they're going to put me on antidepressants. You don't know that. Yeah. First off, therapists can't put you on antidepressants. And there's the difference between a psychiatrist... And a psychologist. And a psychologist. Yep. So know those differences and which one you could see if you think you need antidepressants. Um, you have to know how to decipher between the two. Mm-hmm. I saw a psychologist uh, or psychiatrist once and never went back because literally did not want to hear anything I had to say and handed me seven prescriptions. And I said, I know I'm not, I'm crazy, but I'm not that fucking crazy. I'm not even on seven pills and I'm that shit. So I actually wind up working through my mental health issues with my primary Mm -hmm. and she listened, you know, and she was the one that said, you know, I also recommend you going to see a therapist. So with them working together, I was able to find something that works. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there is a big stigma, you know, men, especially, um, you don't talk about it. Yeah. If you don't talk about it, it didn't happen mm-hmm. or it'll go away. Yep. So if you're listening and that is the case, I fully advocate for it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I feel like, you know, I tell my grandmother all the time because she says, I'm depressed, I'm depressed. I'm like, you need to go see a therapist because what you're wanting right now is for someone to just listen to you. Mm-hmm. And, I'm listening, but I also know the things that you're doing are self-inflicted. Yeah. You don't want to hear that from me. So you want somebody who's just going to let you talk Mm -hmm. and listen without interjecting, really. I mean, they'll give you coping mechanisms and things like that, but you really just want to list someone to listen to you. I, yeah, I think, I think the best thing, you know, my first therapist almost put me off therapy. Yeah. Because he, his way of treating me Mm -hmm. was to tell my parents to give me everything I wanted and everything I asked for, and it would make me better. Oh, okay. I wasn't eating. I was cutting myself. I was being abused. But the way to make me better was to get me ice skates. I hope he's not practicing anymore. Honestly, as cruel as it sounds, I kind of hope he's dead. Oh, yeah, that too. Because if he had just listened to me then, mm-hmm. maybe I wouldn't have almost died in my 20s. Yeah. Um. Then my first therapist down here, I tried to tell her that I was having trouble with food intake. She told me I did not have an eating disorder. I had disordered eating and that I was okay. So from the time I started with the first therapist, I was 13. Mm-hmm. My next therapist, I stopped seeing her when I was, I think, 18. 
no one acknowledged that I had an eating disorder until I was 20. Yeah. My eating disorder started when I was 10. Yeah. And the only reason that it was truly acknowledged was because we did an endoscopy and the doctor and my mom came up to Tampa to be there for the endoscopy. And the doctor told us flat out that if I did not stop these behaviors, I was going to die. Mm -hmm. And I was so obsessed with weight and Mm -hmm. so obsessed with attention and so obsessed with seeing myself a certain way that I did not stop those behaviors still for a while after that. Um, but the therapist that I found when stripper boy and I Uh, ended, she ended up being my therapist for a decade. Yeah. And she helped me through so much. And honestly, it wasn't just that it was someone that I could listen to with that would listen to me without judgment. Yeah. Because I have certain friends for that. Yeah. That will listen to me without judgment. She didn't take my shit. Yeah. So if I, I remember. She you accountable. Yeah. And I remember on our first session, I had just self-harmed and I was kind of being an asshole to her. And she sat me down and I was almost like in this mindset that like I could say whatever I wanted. She wasn't going to do shit because none of the therapists I'd had had done anything with myself harming. And so I said what I had to say. It was all shitty about it. And she goes, all right, so this is how it's going to go. You can either sign this document that says you're not going to self harm anymore or your mother's in the waiting room and I can have you Baker acted right now. And I kind of started like to chuckle Mm -hmm. and then she got out the form. And I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. I'm going to sign this form. And, you know, the fact that on the first day she didn't take my shit. Yeah. You know, we were a great pair. And then when she stopped, you know, she stopped fully practicing a couple years ago to run her practice. Um, She transferred me over to another therapist at the firm. And because she had been with me for so long, she paired me with the right person. Yeah. And now that therapist is leaving the group and going somewhere else. And she gave me the option on Monday. She was like, you know, you can come with me. You can stay here. I can help you find someone else. You can just stop treatment altogether. And I told her flat out, I was like, no, where you go, I go. Yeah. Like. Well, that's another stigma too. If someone doesn't work out, don't be scared to find another therapist. Absolutely. Because you're not always going to be like a lot of people think, oh, I found a therapist. I don't like it, but I'm going to tough it out. No, not at all. If it doesn't sit well with you, it doesn't feel right. If you don't. I always said that when I left therapy, I would go twice a week. When I left, I felt like there was a weight lifted off of me. Mm -hmm. And I remember like my anxiety would build and build and build and build. And I almost felt to the point like I was going to combust until I had my next therapy appointment. Mm -hmm. Because I felt like that was such a release and a healthy release for me. And when I left, it would get me through to my next appointment. Yeah. So, and it it wasn't the first person I found. I think I went through like six therapists. Yeah. And I was finally like, okay, I finally found one that worked. Um, She was very flexible, you know, Mm -hmm. and she was very, you know, kind of the same way. She 
would call me out when I needed to be called out, Mm -hmm. but also would make me process and understand things that I was kind of like shoving aside my grandmother's behavior, the family trauma that I went through, you know, Mm -hmm. that I would kind of reduce the amount that it affected me Yeah, because I didn't want to not be judged, but I just kind of wanted to act like, Oh, that's not, but that's not the problem. Like this is the real problem that has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. So she opened my eyes to a lot. Yeah. And there was a lot of healing that had to be done. Um, there's healing that still needs to be done. Of course. So I feel like if you're listening and you've dealt with all of that, that's probably the biggest step is don't be afraid to find a therapist. Don't be afraid to find help. Even if you think, oh, well, I've gotten over it. It's not going to hurt you. Not at all. It's honestly just nice to have an unbiased yes. person. Your friends are great. You. The family members that you have that you can vent to, they're great. Mm-hmm. But I feel like having that unbiased, somebody who's not fully involved, mm-hmm. gives that different perspective that you need mm-hmm. and kind of offers the insight that you need to get over that hurdle. Yeah. Um, because venting to your closest people can only do so much. Yeah. Sometimes you need that um, third party to interject and be like, hey, that's great and I'm glad you're doing this, but let's also tack on to it and try something a little healthier. Yeah. I think one of the things that I love about my therapist Mm -hmm. now is, you know, with what's going on right now, she validates how I'm feeling. And I appreciate that so much Mm -hmm. in a time when most people are invalidating how I'm feeling Mm -hmm. to have a therapist that she's like, basically, you're not wrong for feeling the way you're feeling. And, you know, she, she's helped me so much by just being the person that she will validate how I'm feeling, but then she'll also be like, but there's another side. Yeah. And, you know, or, you know, when, when Mike and I first broke up, I was still in that, you know, I'm going to defend him stage. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I got through that because of her. Yeah. Because what she had me do, and it wasn't that she was like, you're wrong. Yeah. It was because she sat me down and, you know, her office is a very safe space for me. Yeah. Um, I kind of curl into a ball in the corner of the couch and just relax when I'm there and I'm able to talk and cry. That's another thing too. When you find a therapist is feeling comfortable. Yeah. No, I feel, I take my shoes off and I put my feet up and, you know, I sit and, you know, she's one of the first, she, she's, I think the first therapist that I've actually felt comfortable enough to cry in front of. Yeah. And I cry like right now I cry in every session. That's why we see each other every week is because we're waiting until I can get through a session that I don't cry. Yeah. Um, but during that time, she, what she did was she had me tell her my non-negotiables mm-hmm. for a relationship. Mm-hmm. So the things that, you know, I wasn't, I didn't deserve, I wasn't going to go through anymore. And then she had me tell her what my values were and what was most, in, the most important qualities for my ideal man to have. And when I finally did that, she's like, okay, that's great. Where does Mike fall? Yeah. And it really opened my eyes, not only 
to what I deserve and what I want, but it opened my eyes to how little I was getting from him. And because of how she handles situations, because of how she kind of goes through a different door Mm -hmm. to get me to certain places has helped me get through my trauma and helped me become a stronger person and helped me stop self-sabotaging. And so I think having a therapist is great when you have the right one and that it's a safe space. Mm -hmm. If you do not feel safe with your therapist, if you do not feel like you can delve into your deepest, darkest secrets with your therapist, they're not the right therapist. No. And don't be ashamed of it. No, not at all. There's nothing wrong with it. No. Nope. At all. Nope. Um, I feel like some of the healthiest realizations I had were in therapy. Yeah. <clears throat> so, with that being... <clears throat> Jesus, I'm like choking. With that being said... Yep. It wasn't as heavy, heavy hitting. There weren't a lot of tears. No. Um, but yeah, that's the biggest thing if you feel like this kind of resonates with you. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's time to look into addressing those family traumas because I promise you from someone speaking from experience and Allie, even with family expectations that cause trauma, once you address them, it will kind of feel like a weight is lifted off of you. Absolutely. And then, you know, when you move forward, if you have a family now and you're realizing that, you know, there's cycles that you haven't broken or you're getting aggravated because you didn't want that, it's not a bad thing to get help not at all it's nothing to to be ashamed of no it's nothing you know it doesn't make you crazy no it's not only crazy people that go to therapy you know it's just nice sometimes to have that person to talk to you know it's nice to have your husband to talk to it's nice to have your parents your siblings your friends but to be fair most of those people are very biased because a lot of those people will hopefully have your best intentions at heart. Yeah. So if someone has hurt you, they're going to hate them Mm -hmm. because you're hurt. And it takes a lot to be able to see the other side. Yeah. Because, you know, all they see is that you're hurting and they want to help. They want to fix. They want you to feel better. So having that, you know, third person, that third party to talk to that they do have your best interests at heart, but they also are unbiased. It's their job to be unbiased. Mm-hmm. It it really offers a new way of looking at things. So. so I think with that, we'll kind of end it there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we, you, we can always add on to a subject, but that's the biggest thing we hope we take away, you take away from this is just family trauma is something that happens. Yep. It can be generational. Absolutely. It can also be broken. Yep. You can also break that cycle. Um, but I think starting looking at yourself mm-hmm. and being able to overcome those things is a great stepping stone mm-hmm. because it will be life changing. And if, you know, like we said, if you're younger and you're listening and thinking about a family or, either you're seeing things that are cycling in your life because they're familiar yeah and you don't want that reach out yeah get the help you need because it it makes a world of difference absolutely so we will end it there um yeah and 
we will get into our next hard subject. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned.